Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Linux Reality. This is episode 49, one shy of 50, uh, which is pretty cool. I can't believe it. And uh, man, I got a lot of feedback from my episode last week about the Linux in schools. Uh, fantastic. Thank you, everybody. I mean, I got so many emails. I got lots of audio comments, and I'm going to get to a bunch of them today just because I think this is a really interesting conversation. I really want to play um, you know, the stuff that people sent me, cause I think there are just some fantastic comments in there. Uh, so we're going to get to all that in a few minutes. Um, I'm also going to talk about, uh, screen, um, which is a program I've mentioned here and there before. It's going to be kind of a high level, sort of a brief look at it, but I mean, you know, it'll, it'll get you going. And uh, I've got some good links to some resources on, on, uh, on the program screen. Uh, before I get to that, though, a couple of sort of things I was just going to talk about, not really administrative. Well, I guess one is. The first one is I've been having problems with my feeds on the website. The main MP3 and the main AUG feeds, I think, are okay. Those are the ones that have all the episodes in them. But, you know, just a month or two ago, I mentioned that I was sort of beta testing some feeds that would only have the last 10 episodes, and those were working fine. And... I made the dumb mistake of upgrading WordPress. I mean, that's not dumb, I guess, because there were some security issues that I, you know, I wanted to upgrade to the new version 2.1 of WordPress. Well, um, part of that upgrade, they've changed the way they do their RSS feeds within WordPress. I mean, they've changed the PHP files. And I mean, I had backed everything up, so I have my old files. That's not the issue. It's just that the way these, these PHP um, uh, uh, files are called when someone requests the RSS uh, feed, change has changed. So, because what I had done earlier is I had sort of hacked together some some um, extra PHP scripts of my own that kind of wired into the way WordPress did it, uh, depending on the, you know the request whether someone hit the feed for the for just the ten or if they hit the feed that had all of them. So anyway, long story short, they're broken. Uh, those two feeds that have just the last 10 episodes, I apologize. I'm going to try to see if I can fix them if I can, but they've really changed the way these back-end um, these backend files are working. So I'm not quite sure I'll be able to do it, but we'll see. I hope so. And if I can, then, of course, I'll let you all know. Uh, let's see, a couple personal items of note, just personal computer things I've been doing. Um, one is I've been trying out some BSDs. Um, I've been trying OpenBSD and FreeBSD on some spare computers, and maybe I'll do an episode about BSDs at some point. A few people have asked me, actually, to mention them, but um, uh, for the time being, uh, there's a podcast uh, called uh, BSD Talk, and um, it's a great podcast, and I highly recommend it. So I'll put a link to that in the meantime if you're interested in hearing some uh, some specific stuff on BSDs. but. It's been really cool. Um, I really, I've really enjoyed playing around with them, and um, you know, um, they each are, you know, they're a little bit different, but you know, they're, they're. I mean, I really just like the Unix philosophy. I really like the Unix operating systems or the Unix-like operating system. So, you know, uh, Linux, BSD. I mean, I've never tried Solaris, but I, I just think those are. I just love the way they do things. So, uh, so it's been interesting. You know, um, I'll talk about that at some point. I also uh, have come into a new laptop. It's a new old laptop, I guess. It's an old used uh, ThinkPad uh, T42, and I've never owned a ThinkPad before. I have a Dell 700M uh, that has, you know, worked very, you know, very well in Linux. And um, but this was the first ThinkPad I've come across that I decided to throw Linux on, and uh, I just I decided to start with Ubuntu um, Edgy F just to see what it could do, and. It was unbelievable. This is the first time, I think, ever with a laptop, everything works. I mean, 
everything. Um, I can't think of anything on it that doesn't work. The wireless, it uses the, I think it uses the Mad Wi-Fi drivers. I've never had a Mad Wi-Fi card in my in, in my um, Dell. I have got one of the Intel cards, but this has got the, I think it's the it's the Atheros chipset, and um, and you know once I connected and updated, and I think of course you know you have to enable the extra repositories, but I did that. Uh, and I was connected hardwired to the internet at that point, but I ran all the updates and I rebooted and it just worked. Um, the resolution was perfect. Uh, I think the Radeon drivers are working just fine. This has got an ATI chip, unfortunately. Uh, I haven't tried any 3D stuff, but all the ThinkPad buttons, you know, to, to brighten the screen and dim the screen and the volume buttons and the mute buttons and the uh, all the extra little features. I, I think the Bluetooth works right out of the box. I even think the fingerprint reader, from what I understand, works right out of the box. It's really cool. And, uh, um, you know, Linux has always had excellent support for IBM ThinkPads, and uh, and I guess Ubuntu has as well. So, you know, very cool stuff, very cool stuff. I'm going to have to try some other distributions on there just for, you know, comparison. But if you really want a laptop that seems to be well-supported in Linux, those ThinkPads seem to be the way to go. It's a little bit heavier, a little bit bigger laptop than I'm than I'm used to, but it's it's not bad. Battery life is not very good, unfortunately. I think I need to get a new battery, but it's one of those six cell batteries, and I'm only getting like two hours. So um, I think they sell a nine cell battery for the ThinkPad that gets you like you know four and a half or five hours. Because on my Dell, I've got the extra, the the bigger battery on the Dell 700M, and uh, I mean I get four and a half to five hours solid, no problems, but. Anyway, that's kind of cool. And then the last thing I was going to mention is I've been setting up a new server here at home. It's a I can I I got an old uh, Dell um, Pentium three seven fifty. I think it's the XPS Dimension T seven fifty R is the actual model number. And I mean this machine is like nine years old. You know, it's it's old. And uh, I got it uh, for next to nothing, and um, uh, and brought it home and threw in some. Some memory sticks that I had, just old PC-100 memory sticks, brought it up to the Max RAM, which I, I think is 768 Max. Cleaned it out. You know, I really, really cleaned out the interior, got all the dust out, cleaned the fans. Um, I threw in some um, uh, extra uh, hard drives that I've got, and uh, it thing is great. I mean, it works perfectly. I, I put Debian on it uh, for a server. I, that's one of the ones I may throw BSD on at some point just to try that out, but it's just amazing old computers and i mean i'm sure there's no way you could run windows server 2003 on this thing but this is running uh debian and you know i've got samba set up i've got cup set up i mean it's managing files handle, handling print jobs it's you know it's it's just great it's so cool what what linux can do on old machines so Anyway, um, I will get to the main topic here in just one second. I did get a promo from from, so, from some folks who were starting a new Linux podcast. So it's called Going Linux. Let me play that now. There's something new on the net. It's the Going Linux podcast. And we're the hosts. I'm Larry Bushy. I'm Sir Dre. And Going Linux is a podcast for anybody interested in using Linux regardless of your level of experience in using a computer. The Going Linux podcast is for both newcomers switching from Windows to Linux and for the Linux user eager to transition into a more experienced user. We will show you how Linux is familiar, like Windows, draw comparisons, and describe the differences between the two. The podcast will be packed with practical advice that you can use right away to get things done. We'll focus on a topic from the newbie perspective, and take that topic a little more in depth for the Linux user wanting to build their experience. 
So if you are tired of fighting viruses and spyware, just check out the website for show notes and articles. We're at goinglinux.com. If you're tired of paying two, three, four hundred dollars or more just to keep up with a supported version of your operating system, listen monthly online or subscribe to the podcast to get future episodes delivered automatically. Instructions on how to subscribe are on our website. If you want to know how to use all the powerful, free, and open source software that you need to get things done, just email us with topic suggestions, comments, and questions at goinglinux at gmail.com. Okay, I'm going to talk about Screen, um, S-C-R-E-E-N. And Screen is one of my top three applications that I use, I would say. I mean, I use it daily. Um, it's just fantastic. Basically, what Screen does is it's called a terminal multiplexer. And it's almost like I saw a description somewhere that described it as a text version of graphical window, window managers. Meaning it lets you run multiple terminal sessions when you're logged into your computer. Um, it can be helpful when you're logged into the computer directly or especially over SSH when you're logging into the machine remotely. Let me give you an example. What you can do with screen is um, I could be sitting at my desktop, you know, just doing stuff, checking email, whatever. I could open up a terminal uh, and just and run screen. And that will sort of, it almost looks like it, it sort of refreshes and it gives me my terminal back again. But my terminal is running within screen. So then in that terminal, I can say, you know, start a download of a file or do something. You know, start encoding some MP3s, let's say. I can detach from my screen session. And it's still running in the background, but I can detach and I get my terminal back. I can close my terminal. Now, whatever screen is doing it's still, it's still doing it. It's still running. So then I can go to the office and I can SSH into my, my machine and I can, you know, that I'll be connected via SSH. I can reconnect to my screen session and be right back where I was again. And I can do that from wherever I want, you know, from any machine. And it basically lets you log into your machine and start doing something and, and detach and, and let it keep going. And then you can come back and reattach from another machine somewhere else. It's so cool. It, it's, uh, it's just, I can't even explain just how cool it is. It's once you get, to, I think once you use it once or twice, you just, you understand immediately how helpful this could be. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about it and just kind of give you some of the commands and explain to you, you know, what it does. Let me read you a couple things. Here's something from Wikipedia about screen. Um, it says, similar to VNC, a screen allows the user to start applications from one computer and then reconnect from a different computer and continue using the same application without having to restart it. This makes migration between locations like work and home simple. Uh, it goes on to say, multiple terminal sessions can be created, each of which usually runs a single application. Uh, each window has its own scrollback buffer, so the uh, output is captured even when the window isn't actively displayed. Windows can be split-screened, so you can have a split in the window and have two different things in one window. Um, it says, screen allows multiple computers to connect to the same session at once. 
allowing collaboration between multiple users. That's an advanced topic of screen I'm not going to get into in this uh, episode, but um, it, it does allow two people to sort of connect to one machine and interact via the terminal at the same time. So basically what you do is, is let me walk you through an example here. Um, obviously you've got to install screen first. So depending on what distribution you use, just got to look for that application and it's usually just spelled S C R E E N and install that and then open up a terminal and let's start the program. Just type in the word screen and you'll see, you know, it almost like be like your terminal kind of clears and it reappears at the, at the top of the, at the top of the window, your, your, um, your cursor that is. Uh, so you would do that. In fact, I'm going to do it as I'm actually recording this. So I type screen and it opens up, uh, it sort of refreshes and I'm, it looks like I'm right back at my prompt again. It looks like nothing happened. Okay. So now type echo hello world. All right. And you'll see it just, you know, responds back, hello world, <laughs> and then type control A and then D, and that detaches. And you'll see it'll kind of clear out the window, and you'll see in brackets the word detached. Now, your screen session is still running, and the words hello world that you printed are still there. You just can't see them because you've detached from the window. So now let's reattach, and let's take a look at it again. So type screen, S-C-R-E-E-N, dash R for reattach, and press enter. And you'll see you're back at the window where you, where you typed in echo hello world. So obviously, you know, you wouldn't be doing it for this, but you could open up this screen session. Like I said, start doing some things that will take some time. You know, even people who start recompiling their kernel or just compiling software or um, you know, anything downloading, like I said, downloading stuff, you could start it in a screen session, detach, shut, you know, close down the window. Obviously you can't turn off the computer, but close out the window and then you can reattach from somewhere else. So let me explain some of the commands here. Um, the main key command that you got to remember is control a control a is the default, uh, key combination to invoke commands. In other words, a command is going to be control a and then something. And the something is what changes. That's the command that you want to execute. Uh, like we just did the control A and then D for when we, um, um, when we wanted to separate from the screen. Um, so let me give you some of the commands. Once you run screen, you can do control A and then C, lowercase C, and that creates a new window. So you can have more than one screen window going at, at any one time. So you could be doing multiple things in multiple windows. The way to switch back and forth between the two windows is control A and then N for next window or control A and P for previous window. And you'll see that the, the, the windows can be numbered, uh, you know, zero on up. And so you can also do control A and then a number and that number takes you directly to that window. So if you have five windows open, you could do control A three, it will take you to window number three. Um, you can also do control A and then capital A and you can name the windows. So if you have one window that's, you know, um, doing some downloading, you can call it downloads. You've got another window open and you're running, you know, a text IRC client. You can call that window IRC. That way it's easy to remember what, what you know, what's going on in which window. So that's control A and then capital A lets you give a window a name. Now, if you have a bunch of windows open and you forget, you know, how many or where they are or what they're doing, you can do Control-A and then, you know, the double quotes 
uh, uh, key. Um, and that will give you a list of all the windows that you have active and that are running. Uh, as I mentioned, Control A and then comma D, uh, and then D allows you to uh, detach from a window. And then Control A and a question mark gives you a list of all the commands, all the different screen commands. It's like a help help page. A couple other a couple other things here is Control A and then capital S is lets you split the screen. Now, when you split the screen, you're not creating a new window. You're just creating a new space where you can put a window. So when you first split a screen, you can only split horizontally, by the way. So when you split a screen, your, your main screen will still be open at the top, and the bottom half will be, will be empty. And you can do Control-A and Tab to tab back and forth between the two sections, the top half and the bottom half. So you're going to still be in the top half once you split the screen. So you would do Control-A and then Tab, and that takes you down to the bottom screen. And then you can do Control-A, N to cycle to the next window, or Control-A and, and a number to open up a specific window. So it's a, basically a way to, for you to have two screen windows open at the same time, one in the top half and one in the bottom half. That's what the split screen does. Um, let's see. Now, if you do um, uh, Control A and lowercase s instead of the capital S to split, uh, the lowercase s like freezes the screen. I forget what it stands for, but if you if you are messing around with it and you do a lower a Control A and lowercase s and this it seems like nothing is happening, just do Control A and then Q, and that that quits out of that freeze. You can copy and paste between screen windows. Uh, there's some detail about that. I won't get into it, but you can do some reading on that. I'll put some links to some good, helpful resources on it, but it explains it all in there. Now, when, you wanna, when you're done and you want to quit screen, you, a couple of things you can do is if you can go from window to window and exit out of each window, you know, just type exit or control D or whatever to, to close each individual window one at a time until you get down to the last one, in which case the control D will exit out and quit screen. Or you can do control A and then colon quit. Colon is sort of like where you can enter a, a longer command or a word or something like that rather than just a simple letter. So control A and then colon quit will quit screen entirely no matter how many windows you have open. Now um, you can configure screen. Remember I talked about the hidden files and directories. Well there's a .screenrc file that you can create where you can put in some some custom things. One thing I like to do is I like to put in the, the two words, uh, VBell and off, you know, VBell off. VBell stands for visual bell, and a visual bell is, is rather than having it make a sound when you make an error or when you, you know, do tab completion or something like that, it will sort of flash like the screen like blinks, and that's called a visual bell, and I don't like that. So I do VBell off in my .screenRC. And then I have a bunch of other stuff in there because I actually have changed the, um, the escape sequence. You know, rather than doing Control-A, because I don't like Control-A, you can change that to something else. So I use something else for that rather than Control-A. You can also set, you know, how many windows start up when, when you first run screen. I have, you know, four or five screen windows starting up whenever I run screen. And you can also set things to run automatically within those windows, like I have a text IRC client set to automatically run within one of those windows. I, I've also made changes to my .bashrc such that um, when, you, when I SSH in, it automatically connects me to my screen session, and I, I also pass along a command 
in screen and SSH to where if I let's say I'm connected to my screen session at work and I forget to de- and I forget to you know um, uh, unconnect before I leave and come home. When I get home, if I reattach my screen session, it will automatically separate from my screen session at work. So um, it lets me reattach wherever I want and it will detach from wherever it needs to detach from. So there's and you can also create like a little status bar at the bottom. I think they call it a tab bar. And um, there's some really cool samples. It's I don't even really know the codes to to do it manually. There's just various, you know, color codes and stuff. But in uh, the Gentoo wiki, there's some excellent documentation on screen. And there's some sample tab, you know, tab line um, stuff. And I've got one that's really cool. It's like it's got the name of the window in green in the lower left. In the middle, it's got like all my all my window names with their numbers next to them. And then in a in a bracket, and then on the far right, I have like the date and the time in two different colors. It looks really nice with a, like a nice gray background or black background. It looks really sharp. So um, that's that's some cool stuff to uh, to play around with getting your tab bar or your status bar uh, just the way you like it. So I cannot emphasize enough just how helpful Screen is, especially if you use SSH and you're you're logging into your machine. I mean, if you're never you going into the terminal or never connecting to your machine from out, from outside, I guess you would never need to use it. But even I think I find it helpful even when I'm just at my regular desktop because if I'm going to do something that's going to take a long time um, at the command line, whether it's compiling something or, or whatever, um, and I don't want to have to, you know, have my window open all the time, I just I re- I attached my screen session uh, and start it in one of the windows, and then I can detach from screen and shut shut the the terminal window. You know, close my terminal window, and it's still going on in the background in screen. Um, and in fact, I've got a, a screen session that's been up for several months now <laughs> um, on one machine that I haven't rebooted in a long time, and it's just the same old screen screen session that's just been running ever since. And you know, whenever I SSH into that machine, I reconnect to the screen session and do whatever I need to do, and I can detach and leave it and reattach whenever I want, and it's just really handy. Um, it, it's almost like when, you, when you're doing SSH, you're, it's almost like you're having multiple SSH terminals at the same time, which is really handy. So anyway, enough about screen. Very cool stuff. I definitely recommend you checking it out, and um, I wholeheartedly encourage, you know, just to play with it, and, uh, you know, I think you'll find it really, really helpful. So... I, like I said, I had gotten a lot of feedback. Uh, before I do that, though, I did have a listener tip. This was one I got several weeks ago, and I've just been a while. It's taken me a while to get to it, so uh, let's play this listener tip now. I think uh, I think it's I think it'll be real handy, and I think people will like it. So here it is. These are a few listener tips dealing with wine for the Linux Reality Podcast coming to you from Josh in Kansas. There are probably some people out there who have struggled to get wine to run a few favorite programs, that is to say games, and have had little luck. One thing I've found is that you can go to almost any site dealing with Linux and find a tutorial for getting World of Warcraft running under wine. There is much less information out there, however, about getting older games to work. In my case, those games were mainly Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri and Magic the Gathering Online. I've simply done without games since I completely switched to Linux because none of mine would work under Wine. A little while ago, however, I decided I'd sit down and get them to working no matter what. 
And so, I downloaded Wine and set it up using Wine CFG. Under the Graphics tab, I happened to tick an option I'd ignored before, Emulate a Virtual Desktop. So I was ready for the arduous task of getting Magic Online to work when I right-clicked on the setup.exe and told it to run with Wine. The next thing I knew, Wine was running a virtual desktop and had installed the game without any problem at all. So I started the game up and soon found that it was running far too slow to be playable. It seems Wine uses up far more memory for games than they require running natively. You might not encounter this problem, since I'm running on a fairly low-end system with an older graphics card and only 256 megs of RAM. However, I found to get Wine running at an acceptable speed, I just needed to lower my screen resolution and shrink the size of its virtual desktop. Now my games are running perfectly fine. One final tip. You may find that Wine adds the shortcuts that would have been added to the Windows Start menu to your desktop menu, such things as a launcher for the game and links to the game's readme files and uninstaller. It did that to me with XFCE at least. These shortcuts aren't found where most other programs put their links, that is, in the USR slash share slash applications directory. At least in XFCE, Wine puts the launchers for these files in the slash home slash username slash dot local slash share slash applications slash Wine directory. You can remove them or change them in there as you see fit. Well, that's it for this listener tip. Hi Chess, this is Bill Lang speaking from Aberdeen in Scotland. You may detect from time to time that I live quite near the airport. First off, I want to congratulate you on the series. I just recently discovered Linux Reality and I'm playing catch-up listening when I can. My guess is you are producing on a shoestring budget, but nonetheless you have made a professional and polished series of podcasts and I raise my hat to you. I rate Linux Reality up there with security now, and far better than some podcasts I have heard recently. I've been around in the IT support and maintenance business for many years, and from time to time have collided with Unix and Linux, but to date have never really managed to develop any in-depth knowledge. It's not that I'm afraid of the command line, you understand. I've wrestled with many non-GUI operating systems in my time. Recently, there has been a lot of discussion about if and when the Linux tipping point will come, and much outrage at Novell's deal with Microsoft. On those topics, I would like to say the following. About 18 months ago, I installed a copy of Novell's SUSE 9.x on a PC just to see how well the desktop environment stacked up against Windows. The installation was flawless, and the result looked really good. However, I was almost immediately disappointed to discover that the spreadsheet program, I forget what it's called now, could not draw some of the graphs that I had been using in Excel to explore Fourier's theorems. Now, maybe I was being a bit too optimistic or demanding, but the point I'm trying to make is that it is difficult to wean users away from the comfort of their existing Windows environments. To that end, I think we need companies like Novell and Red Hat to develop Linux distributions, as they are doing, that deliver a desktop which is not only better and cheaper than Windows, but makes the migration from Windows painless. 
Unfortunately, the geek-only image is still too prevalent. Many years ago, and not long after Novell had acquired a large chunk of Unix world, I attended a seminar where a Novell speaker announced that they were going to combine the best features of Unix and Netware to make something called Unixware. They were going to remove the slime from Unix. The long hair and sandals would no longer be a prerequisite. Well, it didn't happen, and they sold a lot, well, nearly all of it, apparently, to score. It's funny how things seem to have come full circle. Keep on podcasting. <laughs> well, thanks, Bill. Great, uh, great audio comment. Thank you for taking the time to send that. I, it's just, again, I just love getting that. You re- made some really good points there, and uh, especially about the need for companies like Novell and Red Hat. And, and I agree. I think that Linux needs, I mean, we need, um, it's important to to address the variety of issues that face computer users in general, whether it's home users, whether it's uh, computers in, in, in education, or whether it's in the corporate environment. And we need companies like that, uh, I think, to, to help get Linux um, uh, you know, established in those other markets. Because all of this, and this really gets to this issue of the Linux in schools problem, is that it's a catch-22, and uh, meaning that... Um, you know, schools aren't going to teach Linux because that's not what the employers use. And the employers are going to keep using Windows because that's what everybody else knows and that's what the kids are learning. So it just kind of goes around and around. And like your point there at the very end about coming full circle, um, it's just it's something that, that doesn't seem to change. And that, that, uh, that problem of facing, you know, inertia, I think, is, is daunting. And I, so I think Linux needs companies like that. We need you know, assistance in the, in the various areas to help get, get Linux um, out there to all the different audiences because there's not just one single type of computer user. There's obviously many, many other types. So uh, thank you, Bill. I uh, appreciate you sending that audio comment very much. I, I really do. So I've got two audio comments here about the schools issue. I got some others, and I'm going to play them in the next episode, and I also got tons of email I might read one or two emails here, and I might read some in the next episode, but you know, I definitely prefer having the audio. So um, audio is going to take precedent over me reading emails just because I think that's more interesting for you. So here is an audio comment from Dave. Hi, Chess. Thanks for Episode 48 and your discussion of the importance of kids learning more than just how to run Microsoft Office programs. Open Office is a wonderful alternative that I use in Ubuntu, Mac, and with the portable apps version, a work XP laptop. One of the key advantages of Microsoft has been their powerful programming tools for Windows. Please have a look at Eclipse, that's www.eclipse.org, which is a powerful cross-platform open source IDE, or integrated development environment. It's slick and comes with great auto-completion and debugging tools. It runs fast even on an old Celeron running Ubuntu. Although its greatest strength is Java, you can also code in C and other languages or even mixes of languages. Such a strong IDE, completely free and cross-platform, allows kids not to learn not just how to point and click a package program, but also how to code their own. Hey, keep up the good work. Bye-bye. Hi, Chess. My name is Jack. And you have a great show here with the Linux Reality. I truly do enjoy it. And it spikes my interest back into the Linux community and the Linux operating system in general. 
I wanted to kind of chime in on your last show about the school districts using licensed software. I am a technology coordinator for a school district that has approximately 1,600 students and roughly 200 staff and teacher members. We currently are running 500 PCs and nine servers. We do use Windows XP as our primary operating system on our client computers and Windows 2003 server on our back-end servers. We are currently using Office 2000 as well as Office 2003 and that is because of what you brought up earlier in your show was about licensing. We didn't want to license or upgrade those 2000 machines because we didn't find a need to take those up to Office 2003 because of the uh, differences between the two versions really was not that great. Over the course of this next coming school year, we do find a need to upgrade our computers in our business labs to Office 2007. And that's basically because if you've looked at it, because of the ribbon and the way the program has changed, we feel to give our students everything they need academically on an Office program, they're going to have to be taught using that program because that's what they're going to be seeing in college. Now as you said about licensing for schools, you don't know why schools don't go all open source. I have tried this over the course of the years. I've been working with school districts now for the past nine years and we've tried different kind of scenarios. The Linux has gotten really really good at their desktop software as far as making it point and clickable. I don't like to say it's more like a Windows interface. I say it's point and clickable. People do understand it. I've even had my wife sit down in front of a Linux machine and she was on the internet and didn't even realize that she was using Linux. She said it just feels like a point and click interface to her. But in a school district, the reason we can't do that is because primarily the computers that people are going to buy when they go to school, when they go off to college, are unfortunately going to be Windows based and it's kind of hard to change their views on that because that's what's out there that's what everybody sees that's what they have mostly in their homes I am like you I would love to see the world switch over and do more of the open source stuff and I even point out to teachers that there's a great open source alternative out there to office known as open office and I'm sure you use it every day most teachers that download it and install it or we burn it on a CD and hand it to them they truly do enjoy it. They truly love it. Works really well for them. In a school district, though, the licensing fees are really low, I guess you could say, almost minimal um, compared to other applications that we have to purchase in a school district. Such as, just to give you an example, Office 2000 Enterprise, each license for a computer in a school district is $68.70. Windows Vista the Ultimate Edition will cost us $66.10 per computer. Now, on the scheme of things, if you look at the 500 PCs that we currently are running, that would be for Office 2007, $34,350. And for Windows Vista, it would be $33,050. So as you see, we don't do those massive upgrades uh, such as business may do. We don't have to go out there and upgrade all 500 PCs we kind of pick and choose where we really need the different applications and the different software. Speaking of Windows Vista, we won't upgrade all of our systems in our network right now because a lot of those systems won't handle 
that high-end operating system. Um, the only other thing I have for you is if nobody out there has heard about it, and I'm sure you have being a, the Linux guru of the Internet, is we have looked at a program called K12 Linux. It's a back-end server Linux. It works really, really well. You only need a floppy disk to boot the workstation, and it boots right back onto that server that's running the K12 Linux. Pretty much like the Windows Terminal Server Client, but it works a lot slicker. I haven't been able to get Windows to work as well as this K-12 Linux. Once it boots up, you can singly install the application on the server and every workstation will see it because it boots right into a desktop on that server itself. We have also experimented with OpenOffice on a lot of our computers in our network and we talked about changing a lot of the lower end. Lower, by lower end, I mean the grades K through 6th grade into the open office package because they don't really have business typing classes to, to worry about seeing the interface. They just have to worry about typing documents and we feel it would be a great solution, although we have not gone that route just as of yet. And we are experimenting also with Linux on our back-end file servers. The server side of things, nobody really sees it and you can save a great deal of money. Well, Chess, keep up the great work. Linux Reality is a great show and it keeps my interest up in Linux. And right now, I'm playing more or less with a desktop version of Ubuntu, and I really do enjoy it. So take care, and I hope to uh, hear from you again sometime. And if you want any other views, by all means, uh, just email me back on the email that I'm sending with this post. Take care. Thanks. Well, thank you, Jack, and thank you, Dave, as well, for your uh, audio comments. Jack actually also sent another one previously. I'm going to get to that in the next episode. It was more of a question, you know, not focused on this issue. But those are some excellent points, and, you know, it just – I just find this whole topic very interesting, and there's, there's you know, there's a lot to talk about, a lot to think about, uh, lots of ways to, you know, address this issue if it needs to be addressed. You know, maybe some people don't feel like it needs to be addressed, but uh, – um, thank you for sending those in. I really do appreciate that. Um, I got a ton of email, and I was sitting here as that was uh, as I was listening to uh, Jack's comment there, trying to figure out which ones to read. And there were just so many good ones. Um, I don't even know, you know, I don't even know how to pick and choose. So I think for right now, actually, I'm probably just going to go ahead and wrap it up. In the next episode, I do plan to get in uh, one or two more audio comments as well as some emails. So, um, I but for now, I think it's probably time to wrap it up. Okay, well, thanks again for listening, everybody, and for staying subscribed and all that good stuff and sending in those emails and those audio comments about this topic. I, Like I said, I just find the whole topic very interesting. I think it's it's just a fascinating subject, and there's a lot of complicated issues and, you know, a lot of different players, a lot of different, you know, issues with, diff, you know, different agendas and different different points of view and it's just, just, you know, it's just a fascinating topic. And, and you know, if, 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 if you think that there's value in exposing the future generations to alternative operating systems and options and choice and freedom and all that, I mean, that's sort of the assumption here. If you feel that, that if somebody feels that that's important, then obviously we've got a difficult mountain to climb. I mean, there's, like I said before, there's a lot of inertia. There's a lot of hurdles to overcome and a lot of mindsets that need to be changed and that sort of thing. So, 
you know, I don't know. But, you know, keep sending them in. If you got more thoughts, more comments, either by email or preferably audio comments, please send them in. I'll keep playing them as long as you send them. So uh, thanks again, everybody. I hope you all have a great week. And I'm going to get out an episode 50 celebrating our one-year anniversary here uh, real shortly. In fact, it may not be very long at all. So stay tuned and uh, please do stay, uh, stay subscribed. And thanks again for all your support, everyone. Hope you all have a great week and take care. This has been episode 49 of Linux Reality. Bye-bye.